Are these two in 2021's top tier? I'm Jarrett Murphy, the executive editor at CityLimits.org. My broadcast partner, Ben Max, the executive editor at GothamGazette.com, is off tonight. He'll join us again next week. Conversations with two of the broad, wide, interesting field of candidates who are trying to become the next mayor of the city of New York in this 2021 race. We'll hear from Diane Morales and Sean Donovan, uh, two people who used to be, who who were, have been on the show previously uh, over the past year, coming back now now as the campaign gets more serious, as we wind toward that all-important Democratic primary on June 22nd. And uh, the conversations you'll be hearing are taped because of the state of the race we're in. There are so many mayoral forums going on nightly, multiple chances for the candidates to express their views on a range of issues to all sorts of organizations and groupings of people. And so it's impossible to get candidates to come on the show live because of those commitments. So Ben and I spoke to them earlier and we'll be playing those interesting conversations for you in a few minutes. The race, as I mentioned, is moving from that kind of early period uh, into the, the meat of the race, the heart of the race. And the first of what I'm sure will be many serious polls came out today. Uh, and that is, is a poll by the Fontes Advisors and Core Decision Analytics. And it finds that Andrew Yang, a late entry in the race, obviously a guy with a big name from his presidential run, uh, has a commanding lead at the stage. It's uh, 28% of total votes for him, followed by Borough President Eric Adams of Brooklyn with 17%. Scott Stringer, the city comptroller, with 13%. Uh, and then you have a sort of second tier, tier of Sean Donovan, who we'll have on the show today, and Maya Wiley, the uh, former uh de Blasio administration, mayoral council, each with 8%. Um, Catherine Garcia, the former sanitation commissioner and food czar, Ray McGuire, the uh, pioneering financier from Citigroup, uh, and Diane Morales, who we also hear from today, with just 2% each. What does a poll like that mean? I don't know. Uh, each candidate is spinning it their own way. Um, there are kind of good and bad things to take from it for just about everybody in the race. One thing that's clear is that it is very early. Early. You know, New Yorkers are largely still recovering from election 2020 and all the drama and passion that occurred after that election, including right up to the date of the inauguration, paying attention now to impeachment, in some cases looking at uh, special elections in their neighborhood for city council if they are engaged in city politics. Many people are still just tuning in to the mayoral race. So it is early. Uh, but these races do tend to get late pretty quickly uh, when it comes to fundraising, deadlines to qualify for all important public matching funds coming up very soon, uh, at which point people have to demonstrate some strength in order to get those funds and, and they need that money to continue a viable campaign. So it could be fairly soon that we see people starting to uh, pull out of the race already. One of the candidates we have spoken to on this show, Zach Iskell, the uh, former Marine and social entrepreneur, has shifted from the mayoral race to the comptroller's race. We might see other moves like that or moves out of the race entirely in coming weeks. Um, so important news in terms of polling, not surprising that Yang has a big following. We know he does. Big name recognition. We know that's there. Uh, we'll see as the next few weeks play out how the race takes shape. So to go to our interviews today, as I mentioned, uh, Ben Max is not here tonight. He spoke earlier to Diane Morales, who is the executive director and CEO of Phipps Neighborhoods before uh, moving away from that job to run for mayor. Um, she is well one of several women in the field. Uh, she is 
person probably with the most prominent nonprofit experience in the field, although others have um, worked in those worlds as well. Uh, and she spoke to Ben earlier today about the state of her campaign and the issues that it's talking about. So let's queue up that interview now. This is Diane Morales speaking with Ben Max. And we are happy to welcome back to Max and Murphy, Diane Morales, a Democratic candidate for New York City mayor. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. It's good to be here. You, We've spoken a number of times since, but on this particular show, um, you were with us almost exactly a year ago, February 5th, I believe it was, mm. really right before the whole world, uh, at least the New York City world, changed Um so why don't we start there? I mean, it, it's been a year. You were already running for mayor. You had declared at this point um, yeah. in 2020. What's changed in the last year for you and for how you're running your campaign for mayor and how you're thinking about being the mayor of New York mm-hmm. City? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, aside from the world turning upside down um, since we last spoke, um, I think that. I think that there is an increased sense of urgency, I think, and and sort of, uh, I believe, a a moral and urgency around addressing some of the issues that informed um, the foundation of my platform to begin with uh, around equity and justice, around communities that have been historically marginalized and and left behind and, and sort of not prioritized in city policy. I think that has increasingly become... Um, a conversation that that others are engaging in, particularly in this race. Um, but you know, you know, for me, that they were the focus of kind of why I jumped into the race to begin with. You know, as for the campaign, we have. Uh, you know, I've said this before, you know, no one expected us to still be in it at this point in time. Um, and um, not only are we still in it, but I, I think that uh, we've, you know, we've continued to defy expectations. And there's a there's sort of an increasing momentum and surge of support um, for for my campaign and, and my candidacy, I think, because of the messages um, and because of the, the number of people in New York City who have been disproportionately affected by, you know, the multiple pandemics that have uh, really, really assaulted our city um, and the country over the last year. You've had, uh, you know, speaking of that and sort of defying expectations, you've you've sort of had to elbow your way into some of this. But but now, you know, you're you're invited. You know, there's there's like 30 candidates registered for mayor only, you know, between eight and 12 are being invited to many of the forums, some others. Um, You know, I've done a series of interviews with many of the candidates beyond that that short list. But, you know, in some ways you kind of had to elbow your way in um, to the conversation, even though there's a lot of people who've. you know, known your work and respected your work, yeah. but but talk a little bit about that and sort of um, how you feel about where you're at in the field and the race right now, and mm-hmm. how you've uh, kind of asserted yourself. Yeah, thanks for that question. Actually, um, you know, I, it, it started happening really early on. Um, that what you know, what I've referred to publicly as sort of the erasure um, uh, of my candidacy. And you know, while I've certainly responded it in a particular way, I mean, the reality of it is that that is something that um, is is a, an experience, unfortunately, that's shared by a lot of women, a lot of women of color, um, and a lot of folks who are not connected to sort of you know these larger networks of political. Of, the political establishment or have, you know, come into this stuff with a platform, um, that, that sort of gives them increased visit visibility, 
um, it was a it was a deliberate choice on my part when when that start started happening to to speak out about it right um partially because I feel like it's so reflective of the actual reason why I'm running for for office right because there's so many communities that are in fact erased um, in decision making and in, in sort of um, you know how policies are, are created and, and in representation in governance that um, it was sort of an ironic, uh, manifestation of those issues. And, and so it, it was because of that that I actually made the decision to speak out about it and call it out um, because it just was too, it was just a too perfect an alignment of manifestation of kind of what I'm actually hoping to undo with my, my candidacy in this, in this race. Mm-hmm. And so how do you see your campaign right now? I want to get into some of the policy specifics, but since we're talking about sort of the big picture, Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself, um, you know, among the the most likely to win the primary right now? Do you still consider <laughs> yourself a big underdog? Are, do you consider yourself, you know, I'm really now I've identified myself as the, you know, sort of furthest left candidate in the field and all the left leaning voters should really start checking me out. How are you thinking about sort of your <laughs> place in your place in the race? I mean, it's certainly um, I I certainly see myself as continuing to elevate um, and amplify the voices and the perspective of, of, you know, a a group of New Yorkers that um, are aren't really are still not really being reflected as as clearly in this race. Um, You know, the 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 reality that we're living in right now with the COVID with COVID pandemic and all of that has made it increasingly difficult to actually connect with those very people, right? Because so much is happening online and so much is reliant on technology and infrastructure. Um, and, and so people having it's the time, of, you know, having the time to tune into these zoom forums that we're, we're doing. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a forum at nine 30 this morning. Who is that accessible right. to? Right. Um, it was, you know, and interestingly enough, it was about, food insecurity, which is an incredibly important topic. But most people who are food insecure are probably either working or homeless right now. Um, and so, you know, it's there's a little bit of um, irony in that, I think, um, and a little bit of frustration for me in terms of not being able to have the kind of contact with the people that I want to sort of represent that I, you know, that I'd like to have. Um, you know, so in terms of in terms of the primary and your question about the primary, I think all of that re- remains to be seen. I, I think one of the things we've seen is that there's no clear. Um, I don't think there's a clear front runner. You know, people people can try to sort of craft the narrative that that benefits them the most for obvious reasons. Right. Um, but I think one of the things we've seen is that even those with millions of dollars um, and, you know, campaign staff that are getting paid six figures are still not clearly in the lead. Um, and that, you know, our campaign in particular, the the, the little engine that could um, is is doing things that um, that were not expected. So I, I think that we're going to c- continue and keep up that pace to the very end. And um, we'll see what happens happens in June. Mm -hmm. Say a little bit more about that in terms of reaching the the voters, how, you know, even, even uh, raising more money than many people might've expected you to at this point, you still need to raise a lot more money. You need to hit Mm -hmm. matching funds to really have a good windfall. Are you going to be able to do that? Are you going to be able to reach people? um, And how? 
Yeah. I mean, yes, we're going to hit matching. We're, we're, we're um, ahead of schedule for the March um, deadline. So looking forward to that. Um, and that'll definitely, um, you know, in, increase some of our outreach. Um, I'm actually, you know, kind of looking forward to the warmer weather and the, you know, the ability to get out um, in a safer way. Um, I, I think, you know, we have been quietly working on expanding sort of our, you know, networks, both formal and informal across the city um, with other candidates with other electeds, um, but also community leaders, which is at the at the sort of core and, and root of, of the campaign. And so, you know, as soon as we feel like it's safe enough to do that and and comfortable enough to do that, um, we will we will actually get back out there. Um, we have a really robust network of, um, of volunteers that I think is extraordinary. Um, that was evident last weekend when uh, I was fortunate enough to be endorsed by the new freshman assembly member, Jessica Gonzalez Rojas. Um, and we had an incredible turnout of, of support um, in volunteers. Those folks are chomping at the bit to get out there. Um, and it's us kind of holding them back right now, uh, mm-hmm. just because of the, the state of the city in terms of the public health crisis. But um, I'm anticipating being able to do that. Uh, do you know how many you know? people have, have signed up to volunteer for you? Uh, we have over 200 people that have signed up to volunteer, actually. Okay. Um, and we are actually in the process of signing up uh, field captains for uh, petitioning, although we're hoping that we won't have to do that. Um, and we have right, well over right. 100 field captains signed up for that. OK, so this is uh, this is this the infrastructure and fundraising are moving right along. All right. So so maybe we'll come back to a little bit more of the politics of it. But while while we have you here today, I wanted to really t- touch on two main issue areas that you've been talking a lot about. One is public mm-hmm. safety and the other is housing and homelessness. Um, so maybe let's start with the latter first. Um, you, like much of your campaign, you're really talking about trying to reimagine the way the city does things in a, in a pretty sweeping way. On housing, can you give folks the broad strokes of what that looks like at this point? Yeah. Um, and and where does building more housing fit into the picture for you? Sure. Um, so, you know, on the housing front, I, I think about it in two sort of ways, right? Two prongs, if you will, right now. One is in terms of addressing the the homelessness crisis, um, and I think that there's you know there are things that we need to do in the short term um, to address that because we can't separate this public health thing from you know from from either public safety or or, or housing, and um, and I do believe in in housing for all. Um, so in terms of of addressing the homelessness crisis, I think that there's some immediate things we could be doing. We should be looking at um, you know. The, the, hot- the vacant hotel spaces um, that are, you know, so abundant all over the city. Um, we should be looking at uh, really sort of, I said this the other day and then um, needed to correct how I said it, be more flexible in zoning, right? So spaces that might exact, might now not be zoned for housing, like office spaces, and commercial spaces and community spaces. How can we how can we be more flexible in zoning right now to provide housing? You know, provide sort of a, a stable roof over people's heads um, in the sort of shorter term. On the longer term, I, you know, I I said this at the homeless forum last week. We actually, I think this the city needs to shift its paradigm for housing from one that um, you know. Uh, provides shelters, um, you know, and funds shelters to one that really seeks to provide permanent affordable housing for people. Um, And again, I think, you know, employing some of the strategies that I I just talked about in in addition to um, looking at, uh, you know, 
vacant apartments and that kind of thing to, so, so that we're moving people into permanent housing and not sort of creating this, um, this industry, this shelter industry that where people just don't, we're, we're spending so much money and people don't feel safe and people don't want to be in shelters anyway. Is it about shifting the massive um, city money that's spent on affordable housing subsidies to go deeper to just, you know, fewer units, but at deep, deeper levels of affordability? Is it about better leveraging the private market in a, in a way that the de Blasio administration hasn't? How do you think about sort of leveraging city funding and city zoning yeah. um, in those yeah. ways? I think we need to go to deeper affordability. Um I don't, you know, I think the, the, one of the flaws of the de Blasio plan was that it relied too heavily on developers whose, you know, priority is ultimately the bottom line. Um, and we need to actually shift, shift all of those incentives, those subsidies, those, um, you know, the, the, all the, as I said the other day on a, on a forum, those kickbacks essentially, um, into investments in the community. And I think, you know, that means also uh, more deeply investing in the accessibility and the availability of co- cooperative housing and social housing, um, community land trusts. I think those are all tools that, um, can be used in creating and expanding the pathway to both increasing the number of units that are available and the the affordability of what what becomes available so that uh, we're making it more accessible to all New Yorkers. And what about rezoning wealth, you know, wealthier neighborhoods? There's a pretty grow, big growing chorus about uh, the rezoning in, in Soho. And then mm-hmm. there's a number of voices calling for doing that type of thing in a variety of wealthier neighborhoods, a different approach than de Blasio has taken throughout his tenure. Um, but that way you're developing some portion of units mm-hmm. as as affordable in wealthier areas and letting the the market um, produce some of those units for you. What do you, what do you think about that? Um, you know, so I think the zoning process, um, and conversation in and of itself, um, needs to sort of be restructured from top to bottom. Uh, you know, it, zoning and rezoning should really be driven, um, by communities, um, not just that by giving them a seat at the table, but actually giving them a leading voice at the table. Um, that being said, you know, I think it also has to happen within the larger context of the city, right? A citywide sort of context of what exists where, what economic resources, what housing resources, um, and what the balance looks like overall, um, citywide. I think we also need to move away from the whole sort of council member deference, um, model that, that, makes it possible for one person to single-handedly strike down or, you know, at least, you know, off, off the record has made it possible informally has made it possible for, for that to happen. Um, Cause we, because we need to recognize that we need to take a look at the whole the city as a whole and actually um, do things in a, in a balanced way while initially I think really centering and, you know, the equity conversation so that people are getting access to quality housing everywhere. So in other words, if you're mayor, you're working with leadership in the city council to say to city council representatives of wealthier areas, your area, your, your community, your district needs to do more to contribute Mm -hmm. to the city's affordable housing production. Yes. Yes. You were. Yes. We all have to, we all have to put some skin in the game, right? This is, um, this is not an either or it's a both. And, and so everybody has to play a role in getting the city to where it needs to be. And, and, you know, just to be clear, like where it needs to be is not where it was before COVID. Um, we actually need to create a new, 
a, just a new framework for everything and how we think about and how we um, approach all these issues that are interrelated um, in the city. Speaking of a new framework um, on public safety and policing, you've obviously gotten a lot of um, attention, raised a lot of eyebrows by saying you want to cut the NYPD budget in, in roughly in half. I mean, it, the, yeah. the the operating budget, let's say, is about right. $6 billion a year, but but it's um, becoming more and more known that the, the expenses on the NYPD annually are, are far greater than that. But you've called for a $3 billion reduction in the next yeah. budget uh, to the NYPD, which is a fast and massive cut. Uh, can you explain how you would do that? Um, you know, <laughs> I think we just need to do it. Um, and, and, uh, we know, as you just pointed out, right, that the actual budget is so much bigger than that. So, so 3 billion turns out to be, um, roughly a quarter of it, right. At the, at the end of the day. Yeah. If you include um, pension and, costs and capital costs, right. right. It gets above 10. Right. Yeah, 11, Over time, but, all of mm-hmm. that. Um, um, and, and litigation costs, um, and, you know, I, my, my sort of fundamental premise to that is, is that we really need to move towards public safety. Um, everybody wants to be safe. Um, the reality of it is that, uh, it doesn't look the same way right now in some communities versus other. You know, what we think about and how we impose safety on some communities looks very different than it does on, on in, in others. Um, and, you know, the communities that need resources are not getting that, but instead they're being over, over-policed. So we actually just need to transition from, um, from the idea that policing equals public safety to the recognition of what, in fact, creates safety. You know, we have been contributing to uh, less safe communities by defunding schools, by defunding housing, by defunding so many critical services that communities need to be safe for a really long time. Um, and it's time for us to reinvest in those things. And the, the, the first place to do that I, would be to divest from policing and really start to invest in communities. So when you say just do it, though, uh, you know, say a little bit more. I mean, how do you how do you do that in one year? That was one thing I was going to ask you, but I see it's up on your website now that you say in the next budget. I didn't know if that was a multi-year process to get three billion dollar reduction. Is it possible to do that without a bunch of um, layoffs, which, you know, would need to obviously be part of the larger city budget picture? But how do you reduce three billion dollars yeah. that quickly? Yeah. So I don't think, I don't think of it as layoffs, right? Because we are creating jobs. Um, we're actually creating a lot of jobs. We're just creating jobs that are much more connected to sort of like the care economy, the real care. Um, you know, when we talk about, um, providing additional, you know, counselors or medics or, uh, you know, people who are trained in um, de-escalation, it, it is it is sort of the re- we could repurpose people and retrain people to do these other jobs um, in the city. We're not we're not eliminating jobs. Right. We're, we're sort of shifting. We're just shifting them from one function to another and providing people with the training and resources to make those moves. Um, and I and so you know, think I, you could take a big group of people from the PD, take away their uniforms and guns and and re, repurpose them with and, retraining in other departments and services. That is what we would be willing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, people have to choose. Right. Um, and it will be their choice whether or not that's something that they're they're willing to do. Um, but I guess the, the most important thing to focus on is that we're not I'm not talking about taking away their jobs. They may choose 
to not um, keep a job or to not transition to a different kind of job. Um, but it is not something, it's not a choice that's being taken out of, taken out of their hands. That's interesting. Okay. So, so people in the employee of the city would have some options under your plan, but you're, you're talking about really the shifting of resources and responsibilities. Yeah. And, and, you know, the reality of it is that a large part of the civilian um, employees of the NYPD are actually, you know, you know, pastors and medics and you sort of have these other roles already. And so that would be a relatively easy transition um, to make for those folks in particular. Mm-hmm. And when you when you think about um, shifting resources within the city, are there other massive shifts like that? I mean, that's a, that's a very big shift of resources, $3 billion in one year. Are there other big shifts like that you, you would point to? I mean, I think that that, I certainly feel like that would be um, a big enough undertaking in year one. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, And that would be a big priority um, for us. I think, you know, there's some, some other things when I think about housing, right. That's another sort of big area. We Mm -hmm. haven't put a dollar figure to that yet. Um, But I do think that that's has to be another place where we look at dramatically shifting from, you know, the shelter system to more permanent housing, um, the current model of housing development that focuses on, you know, developers to a model that focuses on and prioritizes investment in communities and community led processes. Um, those those are other shifts that I think um, we would look to start to make um, a big difference in, in, in the first year. And so as we uh, wind down our, our last 30 seconds here, um, I guess some of these questions today get at a larger question. You've talked about sort of developing your detailed policy proposals with community uh, as, mm-hmm. as is in line with the themes you've talked about in this interview. Yeah. Do you have a sense of when we'll see from you really a lot of these detailed plans and, and policies that you want to um, offer people as, the, as your candidacy progresses here? Yeah, so you're gonna, um, we're gonna start, um, rolling those out slowly in the next, in the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, we have been having those conversations with community folks, um, and, you know, and those are, those are folks that are on the ground that have been doing the activist work, the advocacy work, um, and that have been engaged in conversations with us already. I just don't feel like we need to reinvent the wheel there. I, I do believe that the people that are closest to the challenges are closest to the solutions. Um, and so we have been engaged in those conversations and sort of pulling things together and we'll start rolling those out in the next couple of weeks. Great. Well, we, we love to hear that and we look forward to digging into those. Diane Morales, Democratic candidate for mayor. <laughs> uh, thanks again for the time and we'll, we'll talk with you again soon. Thanks so much, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. So that was Ben Max of Gotham Gazette, my co-host here on Max and Murphy, speaking with Democratic mayoral candidate Diane Morales, the former executive director and CEO of Phipps Neighborhoods, about some of her policy ideas and also her approach to this campaign. Some really interesting stuff in there uh, about how she's positioned herself and, as I think Ben phrased it, elbowed her way into some of these conversations that initially were uh, somewhat exclusive to her. Also, some really interesting talk about policies, uh, talking about housing, combining both a desire for more community-driven planning with a requirement that all communities participate in the city's growth and shoulder some of the burdens of creating a more dense city that um, reality and population growth and uh, climate resilience and economic justice probably require. Uh, that There's some tension in there and some interesting tension 
that a Morales administration would have to resolve of letting uh, communities have a larger say uh, to a point. Uh, and also on the policing, uh, $3 billion is a massive cut from the NYPD, regardless of how you tabulate their full budget uh, to do it in a year is remarkably ambitious. You can argue about the viability of that and the wisdom of it, but it is, I think, worth noting that Morales is one of the few people I know who's actually put a dollar figure on the kind of cuts she wants to make to the NYPD. A lot of candidates have signed on to various forms of defunding, uh, shifting resources, shifting emphasis, bringing in new uh, kinds of personnel and new skills to the pool of people who work for the NYPD as sworn officers or as other employees. Um, But this year's among the few to have announced an actual number. (laughs) 